whistleblowers have been at the top of the news lane. Today's special guest is the founder of the leading nonprofit dedicated to protecting and rewarding whistleblowers around the world. You do not want to miss this episode as we explore the importance of advocating for stronger whistleblower protection laws and educating the public about whistleblowers' critical role in protecting democracy and the rule of law. Participate, engage, speak out, use your voice to be an effective advocate. The Voices in Advocacy podcast examines the diverse landscape of advocacy, exploring the ins and outs of building influence, driving change, and creating champion advocates. It's now time for the Voices in Advocacy podcast with your host, Roger Rickard. Welcome to Season 5 of the Voices in Advocacy podcast. I'm Roger Rickard, President and Founder of Voices in Advocacy, where we work with organizations to inspire, educate, engage, and activate your supporters by turning them into effective, influential advocates. And this is the podcast dedicated to the art of advocacy. This podcast is for the people that work and engage in advocacy efforts for their organizations, be they corporations, associations, trade organizations, and nonprofit cause groups. Now, let's get started. On today's show, we have the privilege to speak with Stephen M. Cohn. He is the founder and chairman of the board of the National Whistleblower Center and founding partner of Cone Cone and Colapinto LLP. Steve is widely recognized as one of the nation's leading YTAM and whistleblower attorneys and is an active voice in the whistleblower community having helped draft key whistleblower legislation and regulatory rules. He is currently supporting the push to make National Whistleblower Day permanent via a presidential executive order. He is the author of the first legal treatise on whistleblowing and is the world's most published author on whistleblower protection. His most recent book is Rule for Whistleblowers, a handbook for doing what's right. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome Stephen Cohn to today's show. Welcome, Steve. Well, thank you, Roger, for that great introduction. Very nice. Thank you. Well, you're more than welcome. I'm glad to have you on the show today. I think it's going to be very enlightening for our listeners. So let's get right to it. Why are whistleblowers important in protecting democracy and the rule of law? Sure. So as it turns out, we now know that whistleblowers are the number one source of all information on fraud and corruption. And that's what undermines the rule of law. Number one, it has been proven in numerous programs by the government statistics and recoveries. Excellent, excellent. So share with our listeners information about the National Whistleblower Center. I found it fascinating in doing the research. Sure, so we set it up in 1988 because the laws protecting whistleblowers were, to say it mildly, absolutely terrible. So we knew that you couldn't really be a lawyer fighting for whistleblowers if you didn't have good laws to protect them. So we've worked hand in hand, legal advocacy, public advocacy. Most recently, we got Congress to pass a incredibly powerful whistleblower law on money laundering, which is really big time corruption. 
and it has a very well-established advocacy program at whistleblowers with an s dot org and that's where it activates the american people and that's how we got the money laundering law passed 200,000 activists thousands upon thousands of phone calls and no one thought we could do it but we did it well then that's advocacy in action isn't it that's a, that's what we believe in that's the only way whistleblower rights will be pushed and protected. There are no lobbyists out there fighting for whistleblowers. They're all sabotaging, you know, accountability because for money, who's there for the whistleblower? Only the activated citizenry. Yeah, the the grassroots if you will coming up. That's it. Because billionaires and millionaires, they may give to political parties to get some form of advantage, but at the end of the day, they don't like whistleblowers. So you mentioned a couple of the pillars of the National Whistleblower Center. You, you mentioned legal assistance and policy advocacy, but you also have public education. So why these three areas? Well, public education is critical because there now are very powerful and effective whistleblower laws, better than anyone could imagine. But unless you know they exist, you know how to use them, you have, you, you're going to mess it up. Most people have no idea how to legally blow the whistle in a way that you can be protected from retaliation and qualify for often multi-million dollar rewards. The media stereotypes drive a picture of whistleblowers getting shot, going into exile, going to jail, being heavily retaliated against, and that does happen. But there's an entirely other side of what I call the supersonic whistleblower laws, anonymous and confidential, rewards, protections, and truly an effective way to deliver evidence of corruption to the proper authorities and get successful prosecutions. So you're you're pushing for the National Whistleblower Day that I think is, uh, what, July 30th coming up? Correct. So in a, my last book, The Whistleblower's Handbook, I wrote it in 2011. I did the research and I discovered that in 1778, July 30th, after about 18 months of controversy, the founders of the United States stood up for the first whistleblowers. Now, this was a, an amazing situation because 10 sailors and Marines blew the whistle on the commander of the U.S. Navy. One of them jumped ship from Providence and went to Philadelphia and delivered the 10 petitions. And you know, what did the founders do? Did they support dissent? Did they support whistleblowing? Even when it was against their own appointee? Even when it was embarrassing? Even in time of war? And the answer was absolutely yes. And they passed America's, and I believe the world's, first whistleblower law on July 30th, 1778. And since we rediscovered it through historical research, the United States Senate 
for the past 11 years has unanimously endorsed Whistleblower Day and has called upon the executive to make it official, to honor those whistleblowers who have saved lives, saved money, protected democracy. Yeah, and 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 drove into the corruption that was existing in that area, correct? Exactly. It's amazing because when you go back to 1777, when they first blew the whistle in 1778, you see the same dynamics you see today. Corruption in the government by greedy people, yet this spirit of human rights. And that's the division we see today. You see people that really believe in doing what's right, that government should serve the people. They believe in public service. And they believe that by blowing the whistle, and this is the word they used in 1778, from a letter from a jailhouse, we did nothing but our duty. We love our country. And the founders heard them and took action. So it's, it's really been a part of our legal history since the beginning. Oh, absolutely. And what's also amazing, because when you see who was supporting it, the commander they blew the whistle on five years before had commanded one of the most notorious and outrageous slave ships. I mean, that's where he was coming from, greed. And the people who were then supporting the whistleblowers, one of them was a founder of the Abolition Society in Rhode Island. And, and the, the lawyer who represented them successfully, his son became one of the leading abolitionists in America. So you see this one, the one side, human rights, constitutional liberties, and the other side, greed, motivating corruption. Excellent point there. So in your case, Steve, what drove you to become the founder of the National Whistleblower Center? So... Uh, I've always wanted to do public interest law ever since I went to law school. And even before I was, a, I was an activist, we understood the power of, of citizen engagement. And what did it was my clients couldn't get a fair shake. Unless there's a good law, you're going to lose. And it's really hard to tell someone who absolutely did the right thing, saved lives, saved the environment, all our early cases were in the environment, who really stood up, their issues were vindicated, and to tell them, your career's over, you can't win, there's no law. What type of legal practice is that? Yeah. We had to engage. None of the laws I use today existed when I started practicing law. Most of my clients were in just a, 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 my first victory was in a case where the Department of Energy and DuPont said there was no law. We literally fought it in the press and through embarrassment, we got my client who was a whistleblower at an atomic weapons plant reinstated purely from public embarrassment. Again, advocacy and and using one of the tools of grassroots advocacy is, is going through the media. Yeah. And, and so you just have to just take a step back. A whistleblower is often just one person, maybe two. 
within a very large institution, a corporation, a government agency. So you can see it's totally stacked against you right from the start. And how does a working person afford lawyers in cases that may go on for years, especially when the corporations are so set on making an example, creating a chilling effect? So without activating the public for support, our clients wouldn't stand a chance. Your latest book is entitled uh, Rules for Whistleblowers, a handbook for doing what is right. And in it, there are 37 rules. So why did you lay the book out that in such a way? Okay, sure. So the book is really in three parts. The first explains these new laws. And I want to tell you, whistle, this is what, you know, just hold on to your seats. The U.S. Securities Exchange Commission has paid whistleblowers under the new laws close to $2 billion in rewards. It doesn't get very much press. It's not part of the stereotype. The Justice Department has paid close to $8 billion to whistleblowers. So most people have no idea that if they turn in evidence that results in the successful prosecution of some of the largest, most powerful banks and companies. You know, you're talking KBR, you're talking Bank, Citibank, you're talking Deutsche Bank, you're talking the largest, most powerful financial institutions. Yet there's a way to turn in the evidence anonymously, confidentially, and safely and actually have the government conduct highly effective investigations worldwide, hold people accountable, recover billions, return billions to harmed people. But you have to follow these very specific requirements set forth in what I call these supersonic laws, all passed most recently. Why were they passed? Because Congress came to the realization that whistleblowers were the single most important source of information to combat fraud. And once they figured that out, once we were able to demonstrate the power of whistleblowers, they then started changing and adopting new laws to exploit that resource. Yet almost no one knows these laws exist. <laughs> Very few people know how to use them. So the first part is all about that. Second part goes over each of the major laws and precisely how to use it. And the third part covers retaliation. Because, yes, even if you're anonymous and confidential, they may figure out who you are and you're going to have to defend your job. So how do they mitigate these, you know, the risks of this retaliation? I know you address that. Yeah, so the number one way to mitigate the risk is to is for your boss never to know you're a whistleblower. If they don't know who you are, they can't retaliate. The second way is by making sure you give your information to an agency that will honor your confidentiality and use your information effectively because people blow the whistle to do the right Thing. They want their information to be used effectively. That's why they take the risk. So for me, as a lawyer, 
to be able to guide a whistleblower through this process. I mean, that's a, a beautiful thing. That's why I had to write the book, because there's a lot of cases out there. There's a lot of whistleblowers. There are lawyers who need to know how to do this. Bottom line, we whistleblowers have made incredible progress, but we're at the beginning of this era, and we got to take it through. So it, to me, it sounds like there's two audiences then for your book. Other attorneys that may be confronted with this that don't haven't walked through the steps that you've walked through and the knowledge set that you have. Uh, so you're providing them with the roadmap to help protect the whistleblower. And then the second audience would be potential whistleblowers that are sitting there saying, I, I, I can't take it anymore. I know this is a big problem uh, that we need to have addressed and fixed, correct? Correct, yeah. So clearly my number one target was that employee who discovers wrongdoing and is trying to figure out how to deal with it, how to deal with their moral compass, their ethics. But it's also to anyone who works because you may find yourself, anyone may find themselves in a compromised situation. And, and if you look at the statistics, over half of American employees report that they have seen wrongdoing or fraud. Most of them will never report it. They don't know how. But it's also to the American public in, in retelling the history behind the first whistleblowers. That's really telling the American public why you have to stand behind whistleblowers, why you have to make those phone calls, send those letters, because you may not be blowing the whistle, but without your public support, we stand no chance. And that's why understanding the power and the importance of whistleblowing to activate people on these issues because we can win, we can be effective. And, and, and that's a really important thing. So you mentioned earlier that there's the possibility of being financially compensated uh, as a whistleblower if in fact that happens. I, I'm not sure I understand fully how that works my assumption is that if an agency is able to find the company, then the, there is a payout that goes from that fine, goes back to the whistleblower for bringing it to their attention. Is that generically how it works? Yeah, so here, exactly. So here's how it works. The, the reward shifts compensation from harm to impact. Under the old whistleblower laws, you could get a million dollars, but you'd have to suffer. The more you suffered, the bigger your damage if you win your case. Under the new whistleblower laws, they say, we don't ever want you to suffer, but we need to incentivize you giving us the information in a safe way. So therefore, we will give you a percentage of what we recover based on your information. And it's generally speaking, 10 to 30%, depending on the quality, what you do, the risks you take. Now, so here's the critical part. And this is where it's like this circle of accountability that is ingenious. So the law incentivizes the whistleblower to step forward. But only if the whistleblower's information triggers 
the actual prosecution, do you get a dime? But if your information results in that successful prosecution, you get the 10 to 30%. But who pays that? Not the taxpayer, never a penny from the taxpayer. The criminal, the crook pays the whistleblower. So the taxpayer or the victims of crime always get between 70 to 90% of any recovery. But the whistleblower gets between 10 to 30, all paid by the crook, never the taxpayer. So it's a perfect circle of accountability. And each time there's a successful prosecution, guess what? There's a deterrent effect. And we turn the tables. And once it's all anonymous and confidential and the crooks don't know who's turning them in, now you begin to develop the momentum to actually prevent and deter wrongdoing. Yeah, yeah. Makes perfect sense there. You've been involved in some uh, high-profile cases. One uh, that I looked up uh, was profiled on 60 Minutes about a wealth manager at uh, UBS. Share just a little bit about that story. Sure. So, so this is a perfect example. This was a, although he was a U.S. citizen, he was a Swiss banker. He worked in Switzerland. He lived abroad. And as everybody knew, U.S. tax evaders and crooks could open up secret accounts in Switzerland, get a Swiss bank account to hide their money. And the United States for years was unable to prosecute these cases. Switzerland, by law, kept it all secret. The bankers made money. The people who had the accounts, they weren't turning themselves in. That's why they set up secret accounts. So they set up a whistleblower law, just like I described. Within months, the first Swiss banker comes to the United States and turns in accounts out of UBS for which 20,000 millionaires and billionaires were ripping off the United States and every taxpayer by hiding their wealth and not paying their fair share. He turned it in, and that triggered the most successful tax or white-collar crime prosecutions ever. At the end of the day, believe it or not, 50,000 Americans took advantage of an amnesty program, afraid that the whistleblowers were turning them in. They turned themselves in. I've estimated a total of 24 billion collected from about 160 banks that shut down all their US accounts from the 50,000 Americans who came in through the voluntary program and just billions collected. So he got an award. He was the first person ever to get a, a reward of over $100 million. That he, he received from the United States $104 million reward. Why? It's based on that percentage. So he qualified. Now, even though he was a banker involved in wrongdoing, even though he engaged in criminal activity and actually had to plead guilty to it, which is very rare, very unique. He created the largest successful tax prosecutions in history. 
And and what was collected, I think, in those fines was somewhere north of seven hundred million. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so the immediate penalty was seven hundred and eighty million. Then through the through people who had accounts and were afraid of being turned in, five billion. Wow. And then there were meetings. We actually there was a journalist at the meeting of the Bankers Association. They declared U.S accounts in switzerland over the bankers could make a lot more money turning in their u.s clients than ever working for the banks every known u.s account in switzerland was shut down everyone wow what a great great story and a great example of then how the full circle works of, of uh, eliminating the corruption and bringing people forward uh, yeah. No, and just one thing on that is that the, the economists have now studied it and it's 10 to 1, 20 to 1 for every dollar received in a fraud case, at least 10 to 20 dollars is being saved through deterrence. And that's just what we saw in Switzerland. It was a little microcosm of what we see in industries continuously. So you've helped draft the key legis whistleblower legislation and regulatory rules, including those that are incorporated into Sarbanes-Oxley Act, uh, Dodd-Frank Act, the IRS Quitam uh, uh, Whistleblower Amendments, and the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act. Uh, you played that instrumental role in advocating uh, for, those, for those rules uh, along the way. I think you've addressed this a little bit earlier, but uh, why is it really important to continue to push for this type of legislation and then the regulation to back it? Sure. So what you're looking at in Washington, D.C. is trench warfare. It's trench warfare. A bill gets proposed and the Chamber of Commerce and the corporations, the Association of Manufacturers, the Bankers Organization, they come in to sabotage. So the, the money laundering law is the best example. Congress proposes a good law on money laundering, and that's the heart of corruption. The bankers groups come in, and they say, oh, this is wonderful. And then they add a little exemption. If you work at an FDIC-insured bank, you're excluded. Say what? It was one little sentence stuck in a gigantic law. we got to fight back. Then they then. Congress originally said, oh, we'll give whistleblowers a financial reward. And the bankers came in and said, oh, yeah, only if Congress votes each award. Yeah, that will never happen. So they know how to undermine and corrupt the law. They know the points. We have to get in there and fight back on each of these, each of these initiatives. Yeah. And the moment we stop, then they come in and try to undermine what exists already. So these, uh, when banks pay billions of dollars in penalties, they don't sit back. When whistleblowers get these large financial rewards, they don't say, oh, isn't that nice that the whistleblower got paid $50 million? No, they, they're going to work overtime and you need to fight back. So I'm telling you, it's trench warfare straight down so you're doing an awful lot of uh, personal storytelling here uh 
And so why is that so important in the advocacy message? Because at the end of the day, it's all people. Whistleblowers are people. They're common workers. They're, there's nothing special. But when they see wrongdoing, they decide to take some action. Some never will because when they study the laws and the risks, they get scared. But some will step forward. To call them heroes is kind of like a stereotype. They're really not, they're not different from anyone. They're just decided to do the right thing, just like those 10 sailors and Marines. They, they do the right thing, they take the risk, and they hope for the best. And my job is to get a great, a great result. Doesn't always happen. What is the first word that comes to mind when you think of the word advocacy? Success. That in every every social movement, every major social change, every ounce of progress has been advocacy to the American Revolution when they're advocating against kings, to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights when they're advocating for for basic uh, due process to the anti-slavery movement, you're advocating to abolish slavery and equal rights, straight down the line. Not one major human rights law has ever been passed without years of advocacy behind it, period. That's an excellent, excellent answer, Steve. Thank you for that. Uh, on a personal note, what are the biggest rewards in your job? I tell you, the biggest rewards or when a whistleblower comes in, really rattled, shaken, sometimes you know, distressed and depressed, and to turn that around and to see them walk out back on their feet as the brilliant and effective people they were before they started getting hammered. To sit back and to see these whistleblowers re-enter the, the workforce or never even get fired and remain effective, loyal, honest people. And that's the biggest thing that has struck me. The most loyal people are the whistleblowers, the people who've stood behind us with tremendous loyalty are the very ones that their bosses accused of disloyalty. They're the ones you want in the in the foxhole with you. They're the ones you want on your side because they have integrity, they have courage, and they know the difference between right and wrong. And I want to tell you, that is big. Uh, throughout my whole life, I don't really care what political party or persuasion you are. Do you know the difference between right and wrong? Truth and lies. Simple ethics. Ethics. Absolutely. And the whistleblower always brings ethics to the table. Always. What is the best professional tip you ever received for your career? That, I will tell you the best one. And this is when I worked as a law student with a judge. You know what he told me? It was so good. He said, Steve, read the law and do exactly what it says. Don't screw it up. The law lays out what you have to do to win the case. Read it. Follow it. You know how many people don't read? Absolutely. My, my life is, you read it, 
You make sure like when the client comes in, they follow it. And that's what the books are all about. But reading the law obviously isn't that simple because then you have to read the cases, the regulations. What he's telling you is there's a body of knowledge out there that can lead you to victory. Right. Provide you the roadmap. Yes. Uh, Steve, any final thoughts you'd like to add? Well, I just want to thank you for this show and also integrating the concept of, uh, of advocacy with whistleblowing. And, and that's my final thought. Most, a lot of people like the law, they like the cases, but they don't fully understand that it's been the public support that whistleblowers have obtained that is at the backbone of all of our progress. So I really want to thank you for tying those in. Glad to do it. How can people learn more about the uh, National Whistleblower Center and your legal services? Sure. So if you go online to whistleblowers with an S dot org, that's the advocacy side. If you want to learn the law and we have a free online law library, it's very simple. KKC.com. www.kkc.com. That's the law office. Whistleblowers with an S is the advocacy group. And where can people find your book? The book uh, is available in various locations, but if you buy it through the National Whistleblower Center, all proceeds, 100%, are donated back. Books have been donated to the NWC, and they're sold. Every penny is converted back to advocacy every cent. Excellent. Well, that's a great wrap-up of today's engaging, quite engaging conversation with Stephen M. Cohn, founder and chairman of the board of the National Whistleblower Center and the founding partner of Cohn, Cohn, and Polapinto LLP. Steve, thanks for being on the show and all the best. Thank you. Thank you. Let's face it. Today's advocacy arena is just plain noisy. Organizations are stretched. You need every advantage to make sure your issue gets the attention it deserves and your voice heard. The RAP Index is the best way to do just that by finding your stakeholders' relationships and engagement power. Get past the noise. Know who your people know. Go to rapindex.com. That's rapindex.com and tell them Roger sent you for a special offer. If you like today's podcast, head over to where you find your podcasts and subscribe to the Voices in Advocacy podcast. A big thank you to today's guest. I appreciate your time and the unwavering passion for advocacy you have. Well, that's it for this episode of Voices in Advocacy. Remember, you have the power to be an effective, influential advocate. Now go out and make it a better world. We hope you enjoyed today's Voices in Advocacy podcast and look forward to you joining us again next week. To learn more about Voices in Advocacy, go to our website, voicesinadvocacy.com.